You're listening to Policy Currents, a weekly podcast from the RAND Corporation. I'm Deanna Lee. And I'm Evan Banks. Every Friday, we bring you new insights from RAND's latest research and commentary. It's April 3rd. Healthcare workers are on the front lines of America's fight against COVID-19. They're facing difficult decisions about how to allocate limited resources, long and physically demanding hours, staff shortages due to fear and illness, and a lack of adequate protection from the virus. These challenges could have serious short- and long-term effects on healthcare professionals' mental and emotional well-being. To prevent a mental health crisis from creeping in, it's important to take action now. Rand researchers wrote this week about the urgency of this problem. They pointed to evidence of the substantial psychological burden that healthcare workers in Wuhan, China, are now carrying, and to studies following the SARS and MERS outbreaks, which indicate that frontline clinicians experienced high levels of fear, worry, and anxiety during the outbreaks. And they also faced higher depression, anxiety, and post-traumatic stress over time. Additionally, the moral and ethical dilemmas that healthcare workers face will undoubtedly take a toll on their emotional well-being. And overall morale is sure to decline over the course of the pandemic. So what can be done to help healthcare workers overcome these issues? Our experts say that hospitals should focus on evidence-based solutions. For example, frequent shift rotations and breaks can reduce negative physical effects and emotional stress. Providing an isolated and dedicated place for staff to rest and ensuring that they have enough time to recover between shifts could also be critical. And resources such as child care support or alternative living arrangements may help minimize the real and perceived risk of spreading the coronavirus to healthcare workers' families. It's also important for health system and hospital leadership to be visible and accessible to their staff during this time. They should continue efforts to ensure the safety of healthcare workers by advocating for more personal protective equipment and by encouraging rest and recovery between and during shifts. And finally, hospitals can provide access to evidence-based crisis support, such as psychological first aid or stress first aid, which was first developed to support U.S. service members with stress. Another option is to call on hospital chaplains or community mental health professionals to provide services such as one-on-one therapy, support groups, and mindfulness sessions, and to routinely assess burnout and other psychological outcomes among healthcare workers. Providing these types of resources could be just as important as making sure that healthcare professionals have the appropriate protective equipment, our experts say. Failing to reinforce the resilience of those who are risking their lives to protect public health could threaten our last line of defense against this pandemic. Many Americans are wondering whether a loved one should stay in an assisted living facility during this pandemic or be taken elsewhere. You might be grappling with this dilemma yourself, or maybe you know someone who is. So we're bringing you some guidance from a group of RAND researchers and other experts on how to decide the best way forward. For most people in long-term care facilities, it makes sense to stay put. However, leaving temporarily could offer benefits for some. Here are some questions to consider when making this difficult decision. First, what is the long-term care facility's quarantine policy? 
and how well is it reducing the risk of infection. You may want to get a detailed rundown of the current quarantine rules at the facility and ask if staff members have access to adequate personal protective equipment and if they have enough supplies to decontaminate as needed. Second, is the facility screening staff members for signs of illness, and are staff members trained on how to reduce their exposure to COVID-19? Third, what will happen to older adults who may get the infection after moving out and then need medical care? Consider whether the transfer to a hospital or an ICU would be easier or harder from outside of an assisted living facility. And finally, will the facility allow residents to re-enter if they get the infection and then recover? It's also important to carefully consider what your loved one's needs are in terms of day-to-day care. Can you meet those needs at home? If so, what impact would such a move have on your family? And how well can your household control infection risk? While there are no easy answers that apply to all situations, considering these questions may help you identify what's right for you and your family. In the U.S., 14.3 million households were already experiencing food insecurity before the pandemic. COVID-19 shutdowns and restrictions have exacerbated this problem. Families are avoiding or having trouble getting to grocery stores. There have also been empty supermarket shelves because of heightened demand, and restaurants that deliver food are closed or cutting back. Not to mention, widespread layoffs and furloughs mean a lot of families simply have less money to buy groceries. These difficulties can hit all communities, but some groups are particularly vulnerable, including children, college students, families who live in food deserts, seniors, low-income families, and workers who are vital to the food supply chain. Fortunately, there are tremendous efforts underway to make sure that people struggling with food insecurity aren't forgotten. Programs like SNAP and WIC help boost households' food buying power. And the economic relief plan recently passed by Congress will provide federal cash assistance, expanded unemployment benefits, and expanded paid family leave. There are also public and private efforts to bolster emergency food resources. For example, the U.S. Department of Agriculture has authorized school districts to run their summer food programs during ongoing school closures. But there are a few new strategies that RAND researchers say policymakers and community leaders should consider, too. First, this crisis calls for a coordinated response that addresses both immediate problems and long-term challenges. Some jurisdictions, like New York City, have appointed a food czar to help stay focused on the big picture. Second, to protect food supply workers and minimize disease transmission that might hinder food access, businesses and local governments should consider designating farm workers, food processors, food retail workers, and others as emergency personnel. This could grant them access to personal protective equipment, priority access to disease testing, safe work sites, hazard pay, and adequate access to health care, child care, and sick leave. Third, local and state public service agencies could immediately request the waivers needed to expand access to SNAP and WIC. For example, Arizona requested permission to use SNAP benefits for hot and prepared meals, and California requested permission to use SNAP benefits for online grocery delivery orders. This kind of expansion could help ensure that more people can get the food that they need. In short, the weeks to come will demand more creative solutions to address the challenges of food security during the pandemic, particularly for the most vulnerable. 
After COVID-19, should the U.S. lean forward and become further integrated with the global community? Or should it make permanent some of the barriers that have been erected to fight the pandemic? According to RAND experts, the positives of globalization outweigh the negatives. Many U.S. economic sectors, including manufacturing, have benefited from global supply chains, they say. And higher education, travel, and tourism have benefited from global integration as well. Plus, consumers have seen positive effects in the form of lower prices. And although jobs have been lost in some sectors that are susceptible to imports, new jobs have been created in exporting sectors. Globalization also enhances the ability to solve big problems that know no national boundaries. Climate change, financial crises, and yes, pandemics. Responses to the Ebola, SARS, and MERS epidemics, for example, occurred in a world where a collective global response was possible. This collective response helped result in far fewer deaths than in earlier outbreaks of smallpox, plague, and the 1918 flu. The U.S. played a leadership role in those global health responses, most notably in fighting the Ebola virus. Our experts suggest that the fight against COVID-19 could similarly benefit from more American leadership. And ultimately, they say that closing America off to the world after the coronavirus would only leave the nation more vulnerable to the next big shock, whatever it may be. With schools closed, both educators and parents are getting a lot of advice about how to teach students whose classrooms are suddenly at home and online. But kids' needs aren't just academic. It's also important to support their social and emotional well-being, especially during this difficult time. RAND experts have some recommendations based on their research that may help school staff and leadership ensure that online learning doesn't become impersonal learning and that kids' social and emotional needs don't get overlooked. First, they say, don't rush to adopt something new. Plan for the bulk of student learning to use resources that the school district has already made available, and only seek out novel materials where the current ones are clearly inadequate for distance learning. This can help limit the stress and disruption associated with the shift to remote instruction. Second, keep groups small during online sessions. A core aspect of personalized learning is elevating the importance of one-on-one -on -one interactions between teachers and students. By keeping digital lessons to small group or individual sessions, teachers can provide attention and support that benefit students' academic, social, and emotional needs. Third, encourage peer collaboration, which offers both academic and social benefits. Fourth, take care of one another. After all, principals, teachers, and staff have social and emotional needs, too, and their ability to effectively support students depends on their own well-being. Fifth, involve families and caregivers if possible. Educators can enlist the help of other adults in students' lives by encouraging them to talk with children about their online learning experiences. And finally, consider the most vulnerable kids. Some students might lack access to the resources they need to learn and to participate fully in distance learning. Solutions may include providing devices and internet access to homes that don't have them, and making sure that other resources, such as textbooks or other materials, are accessible. We'll close today with a quick look at the potential effects of COVID-19 on the Middle East. 
Just as it will in all other regions of the world, the pandemic is sure to have transformational effects in the Middle East. But according to Rand's Dalia Dasake, the outbreak is unlikely to produce any new strategic dynamics in the region. Rather, the crisis will probably reinforce negative trends that already exist. These include tensions between the U.S. and Iran, increased Chinese and Russian engagement, increasing authoritarianism and the weakening of democracies, and humanitarian catastrophes. Here's how Kay sums it up. Quote, Absent a game-changing development like the collapse of a major regional power, the bleak strategic trajectory for the Middle East is likely to look much as it did before COVID-19 struck. RAND is a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision-making through research and analysis. For more on what we covered this week, check the show notes at rand.org slash podcast. See you next week. Thank you.